Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. And we'd like to give a big shout out to one of our newest donors out there on patreon.com, and that's Kane Marlar. Hopefully, Kane, I said your name correctly. We certainly do appreciate all the support that you and the others out there on patreon.com are providing us. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, Trusted Natural Solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Mentors for Military Podcast. So on this episode of Mentors for Military, we're going to be going into the U.S. Army Special Operations Recruiting. And I know you guys had asked or we had asked our listeners for their questions and stuff. And what we're going to do is at some point in the show, we're going to get into that. But I want to first introduce some of the people that we have on the show so sitting to my right is Matt, and Matt, maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself to give the audience a little feel for your background. Yeah, Rob, thanks for having us on. You uh, bet. I'm Matt, been in U.S. Army, Special Forces, or Green Berets for going on 10 years now, January will be 10 years. I'm originally from San Francisco on the West Coast, so pretty much all around the Bay Area, and then uh, Washington as well when I was growing up. Then... Uh, Pretty much joined the Army right out of high school. Had like a little two-year hiatus before I figured out what I actually wanted to do. And then uh, joined under the 18 X-ray contract. And that's been pretty much roller coaster ride on the uh, soft train from there. So. Well, how was it that you ended up going into special operations or at least near the Army in the first place? I mean, San Francisco, you're living the good life up there in California. Yeah. So my dad, he's originally from Hong Kong. Then he was adopted to the U.S. under, like, an adoption family. So from there, met my mom, San Francisco, and everything. But pretty much the entire time I was growing up, he's a big uh, gun enthusiast. So from there, like, being exposed to firearms, like, pretty much since I was a little kid. Yeah. Like, being brought up around him, um, as well as action movies. So... I think that was a downfall of my Green parents. Green Beret with John yeah. Wayne, of course. <laughs> yep. Downfall of my parents uh, for me and my brother joining the Army was exposing us to Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Like oh. when I was like five years old while everyone else was watching Lion King. <laughs> I was watching like Terminator 2, <laughs> Aliens, things like that. So I didn't originally 
uh, foresee myself joining like the army and SF. But when my brother joined the army, he joined like two years prior to me. Um, he had told me about it and I just started doing my own research about the different branches of SOF in each branch and for like Navy SEALs, uh, Army SF or Army Rangers, things like that. And uh, I think the overall broad mission sets that SF was capable to do kind of drew me in and actually talking to it and a first group guy up in uh, Washington in the Tacoma area before I joined. That's what kind of sold me and set me on the path for Green Berets. Gotcha. So now you've been in a total of, you said, 10 years. Uh, so you came in 18 X-ray pipeline, which we're going to get into a little bit in our conversation. Yeah. But I think, you know, what's interesting is 10 years ago, as I understand it, at least the pipeline might have been a little bit different, I think, during that time frame than what it is now, specifically around, you know, I think today there's a lot of 18 series that go as a group, as opposed to back then, you'd end up blending in with a lot of the 11 series going through OSIT. I think is typically the path, as yeah. I remember correctly, back in the day. So um, we might talk a little bit about those differences, because I think some people are probably going to have some questions around that as to, all right, well, what what is it? What is the pipeline today, and how do you go about doing that? You were a member of 7th Group at some point. Yep. Did you ever go down and go to the Commando School or Lanceros? Or? Uh, no, I, uh, I know a couple of buddies that did, but I didn't get the opportunity and slash didn't want to because a lot of those guys – Come back with some massive parasites. So. Oh, man. That's a tough course. Losing like 30 pounds. I was like, yeah. I was going to say, the average is like 40 pounds, it seems mm-hmm. like, for those guys that come back. And for those that are not familiar with that course, I mean, it's basically it was started, I think, back in the 50s with a couple of the, the guys down there in South America going through the Ranger course, taking that those tools and everything and bringing it back to South America and creating this program that now I think is one of uh, – I would say a premier school for many of the services, and yeah. especially not just U.S., other countries and stuff like to go through that school. It's, yeah. a, it's a pretty tough course. Yeah. They Intense. Like walk through the jungle with no shoes on during, like, the sear portion. I was like, eh, yeah, I know it's in the jungle. It's pretty uh, pretty intense, though. At one point, there's a dive, I think, with blindfolded or something that you end up making into water or something like that. I just, just been, I've got bits and pieces yeah. of it and stuff. I don't know the full aspect of it. So I'm just curious if you went through that since you were in seventh grade. Yeah. How long were you in seventh? So I was in there for almost seven years. Okay. So that's my old trotting ground. I'm originally from Milton, Florida. So okay. Fort Walden, uh, you, uh, you had a good time, I'm sure, down there at yeah, the Destin beach. Yeah, was a nice place. Yeah, no doubt. Well, everybody goes down there on vacations now, man. Yeah. You know, that's that's the premier spot. When I was growing up, Destin was a uh, sleepy, fishy, sleepy fishing village. And so, you know, not too many people went around there. And the Destin Recreation Center was the, you know, like big place. There was nothing nearby. Yeah. And now, like, you know, you can't find hardly the Destin Recreation Center, the Army's Destin Recreation Center. And, and instead, you can't find anything along that highway because that whole stinking thing is just nothing but building after building and terrible traffic and the oh, whole yeah. bit. But when you get to the beach, it makes up for it. Oh, yeah. Good good place. So, Eric, I want to thank you as well for coming on the uh, the show and stuff. So tell us a little bit about your background because you have a little bit of a, a different path. Yeah, good morning, Rob. Um, First of all, I I guess I don't really know the reason why I directly joined the Army after high school other than the fact that several people in my family were military as well. I had a, my father who was in Vietnam for several years, oh. you know, a long time ago. And then I had... Army? An, yep, Army. Okay. And then you had, uh, I have an older brother 
that's also uh, in the army as well. He served overseas several times. And then I have a sister that was in uh, the National Guard for several years. Uh, so uh, being the baby of the family, I decided, uh, I guess, to follow in several of my family members' footsteps. After high school, I didn't really, or during high school, I guess I didn't really have the any inclination of joining the Army. Mm-hmm. But my senior year came along, and I uh, applied for several schools and just didn't go. So I ended up joining the Army. I originally joined as an ordnance uh, soldier uh, repairing small electronics, and then eventually got on a path for SOF and decided to go the civil affairs route. What made you um, decide to go that route? I mean, was it something that being engaged with the, the SOF community or, you know, seeing them around post, or what was it that, you know? I think it was a mix of several things. Some friends that were in the Army already had had gone to either special forces, psyop, civil affairs, or other special missions units. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw them go and do great things, and then uh, not really wanting to stay in originally in the army in general. I uh, saw those guys, you know, get you know a long ways in their career and great schools and education and whatnot. So I, I took the dive, took that course, and I ended up in civil affairs, which isn't. Not a bad choice, in my opinion, but you know we'll get into discussing what civil affairs uh, has and what what it offers. So yeah, I think it's one of those things. I don't think I've actually ever had anybody from civil affairs on the podcast. I think we did have somebody from psyops, um, but well, maybe I, maybe we did have one person. But so I think it will be good to really talk about that pipeline because it's not something that's really talked about within the soft community. I mean, you know, let's face it: when you think about soft, you think about Rangers, SEALs, you know, yeah. eighteen, you know, Green Berets, or you know, whatever. So you're you're never really focused, or on the AFSOC community, PJs, you know, uh, CCT, something like that. So you never you never really focus too much on civil affairs, psyops, and some of the other. Because um, I I had a question that came up that I'll post to you guys later. I'm curious what your answer is going to be for somebody who wanted to go the soft route, but he was thinking, I wanted to go Green Beret. And if he couldn't get Green Beret, then, you know, I, I don't want anything else. So um, there are other options that could be available when you're at the starting point, especially at a MEPS, where you could have a conversation with a guidance counselor about the other opportunities within the community. So are any of your other family members still in? I have uh, my older brother who is still in the Army. He's about to retire uh, after, I think, Nearly 30 years of service. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible. It's been, it's been a long road. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, man, I forgot to ask you, your brother who came in before you two years ahead, is he in? Yeah, yeah he's at uh, Fort Polk right now, actually. Oh, Fort Polk. God, I was there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. I mean, they have great food there. Yeah? Like, surprisingly, yeah. <laughs> they have, like, great restaurants in that town. Yeah. Which I was shocked. So I want to dive in a little bit into... Um, the past, because now you guys are sitting here at Fort Benning and you're in a different, totally different scenario. You're now in the recruiting side of things. So first, how did you get this type of assignment before we get into the the full pipeline? You know, was it something that uh, Branch contacted you guys about or was this more of a volunteer? Hey, listen, I'll, I'll go out there and try to recruit some fellow brothers and sisters to join me out there. Yeah. So uh, for the SF side of the house, basically how it works is like you're obligated to do a certain amount of time in your operational group so for me right now it's sitting at like three years i believe before you're eligible to be pulled from operational status to do what's called a broadening assignment 
So that broadening assignment could include like being a, a SWIC instructor, which is an instructor mm -hmm. in the Q course or any of the specialty schools that USASOC has for 18 series soldiers, or it could be drill sergeant or recruiting duty for what I'm doing right now. So uh, once you hit that three-year mark of your time in group, um, basically you're eligible to be pulled for any one of those assignments. I had no idea that you guys would get pulled to go for like, you know, especially drill sergeant or something of that nature, typically more of the conventional army, but you figure the amount of money that they put into you guys in terms of training, that you guys would have a little bit of a different say-so in, in that round. Yeah. I don't think it's too many drill sergeant slots, but yeah. I have rented to a fair amount of SF qualified drill sergeants out in Sand Hill. So, mm -hmm. okay. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So will branch into pulling them back into group once they come out or are they uh, kind of expected to stay now into the conventional force? No. Um, so once they do your, I believe for drill, it's two year obligation. Then they'll go back to their group of origin. Um, but for recruiting in uh, SWIC or the instructor side of the 18 series house, I believe it's a three-year obligation before okay. they uh, go back to their operational group. Yeah. And now how is that going to be when you're out that long, especially away from kind of your MOS and then getting thrown back into the situation? Either of you guys can answer this question. What is I mean, what have you heard about trying to get back into the fold and back into the group? Because, I mean, you get, you get in a rhythm, you know. Yeah. At least for uh, the SF side of the house, it is a little difficult being away that long because, I mean, three years away from being operational is almost an eternity, you know, when you yeah. really think about it. The best way that I try to work through that issue is to stay in contact with people I know back in seventh group mm -hmm. to, like, kind of feel out what's been going on and um, what they foresee happening in the future so I could at least, like, have situational awareness of um, what to expect when I get back and everything like that. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. I mean, cause <laughs> you challenging. Get, yeah. Cause you can get promoted while you're here, I'm assuming. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's, there's still that same likelihood. You're still part of the same branch and the whole bit. So you get promoted. You may be going back now into a more senior role, um, having not spent the last say three years. Yeah. Um, so I, I could definitely see there being a challenge. I know <clears throat> back in the day, when we get put on recruiting duty and you'd spend three years, you know, Don Art and I were talking about this earlier. Back in the day, it could very well be a career-ending opportunity as much as a career-enhancing opportunity. What about in your case as far as civil affairs? Is it going to be much different for you to get back in the groove? Or? No, it's uh, really similar to what Matt said. Uh, same kind of thing. We get branch uh, assigns us to the recruiting duty. Yeah. Um, after several years of spending time either on a team or uh, some operational position, you get several opportunities for a broadening assignment, and this is one of them. Uh, we have the same opportunities as, you know, like Matt said, drill sergeant, uh, instructor, or uh, recruiting duty. Uh, and kind of the same deal as far as keeping up to date with operations or, you know, planning to go back to it is uh, is challenging. But since the, the groups are small and the uh, organizations are, are small in general, personal contact is a good way to do it. Just, you know, people, you know, ask them questions, keep in, in email contact and, uh, with the command groups as well. Try to get schools if you're here, but that's kind of challenging since they don't have that opportunity in recruiting. So we might fall behind a little bit in, in certain areas, but just having the uh, information is, is key for us, I think. 
So right now, I mean, you guys, your, your role is basically to talk to individuals that are they're at Fort Benning, active duty, conventional army, who are looking to go the soft route. Yeah. So that's a, it's a little bit different because especially you're at a trade dock installation. You know, there used to be a lot more force comm here, and now, unfortunately, there's not. So I would imagine it's a little bit different for you guys because most of these guys are already in, you know, drill sergeant duty or something of that nature, and you're now going to take them out of their MOS once again and switch it to something entirely different. Yeah. Challenging? Oh, very. Yeah. Um, I think the only tenant unit, one of the only tenant units at Benning is a battalion plus size element from 3rd ID, 3rd Battalion 75th. But that's very challenging as well. Yep, yep, because they're already soft. So yep. yeah, exactly. And then, uh, but the, a lot of those used to go eighteen. Well, and I wouldn't say a lot, but there was a good percentage of those that would at least want to go the eighteen pipeline. Yeah, we get we get some walk-ins from them. Yeah, um, just think there's a lot of culture clashing between SF and sure. Ranger Regiment. Yeah, uh, big time. Yep. Um, but besides that, yeah, a lot of. A lot of instructor units here um, that are kind of like fenced in, so it's like you have to play the right timetables for those drill sergeants that want to go. We do cover down at Fort Polk because they don't have a office out there yet. Uh, they are standing one up. I think it'll be stood up in January. Well, they they will be fully manned. So we've been going out there, targeting a lot of their uh, infantry units out at Fort Polk. Oh, interesting. I didn't think about it. So you guys cover Polk as well then? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I guess that would help a lot because then you'd have, you know, more of your force comm elements and stuff that are out there. But here, I would think, you know, like we were just talking about, it's going to be challenging, especially of somebody wanting to go like full on 18 series, but maybe in a reenlistment capacity, they may be wanting to go to something like civil affairs or psyops you find that it's somewhat a referral opportunity and there are people that are more interested in maybe going down that pipeline or is it more of a the same challenge that you know uh, matt's talking about i think it's it's kind of challenging all around uh first you have to get people to make a lifestyle change because yeah. you're you're selling in a sense or offering uh, a new type of job to them it's it's basically up to them to take advantage of it or to stick with what they already have but it is a challenge to get, you know, anybody to make that that change in their mm-hmm. life. So regardless if you're here and there's not a lot of opportunities for us to talk to people other than instructors or if you're in, in Fort Polk where there's infantry units, like the job can be challenging mm-hmm. just to get, you know, the right the right group of people together to talk to. But if they have uh, if you have the right message, they'll they'll do it and they'll go to soft. But I know at Polk, because they have that, that unit that does the assist and advise as units come through there. They'll, they'll, I guess that would be one of the things that they could maybe want to enhance their side of some of the NCOs or younger uh, personnel. I don't know how that would be with, you know, they do stuff where they advise for the ones in Afghanistan as units that are, that are rotating through there. If, they, if any of those would be the ones that would be interested in that kind of. Or can you go, can you go after them? Can you go after? I know they're probably they might be fenced in also for a while because they've been selected to go there. Yeah. So um, we had uh, linked up with the special operations training detachment out there, so they have visibility of all the units that rotate through for like pre-mission training and everything like that uh, for whatever country they're deploying to, whatever they're preparing for. That was pretty difficult at first because we would have to link up our schedules with 
those rotating units and they're so busy like moving there getting the training organized um getting all their equipment downloaded then everything in reverse on the way out so it was very limited timetables we um we were finding that we had access to these guys um we did get access to a lot of them for a couple months in a row um but then it started being like national guard units rotating through so it wasn't really our target audience for things like that um but the SOT D out there, the, the Special Ops Training Detachment, um, they've been very proactive in uh, trying to link us up with those guys. Um, but they come from all over, so right, right. they could come from like JBLM and Lewis, or like Fort Hood in Texas, things like that. So just finding out what units they were, and like on the back end, trying to get those guys uh, linked up with their respective recruiters for what area they're in, basically. Okay. So let me ask you then. I'm a I'm a guy that is stationed here at Fort Benning or Polk, and and I walk in your door. I'm a walk in, and and I'm I'm interested at least in hearing more about special operations. How is it you would guide me to some specific path or direction? You know, like when you think about typical recruiting, mm-hmm. you're going to start going into you know the basic questionnaire, uh, getting into a little bit more of their background, their their. Yeah, learn learn a little bit about their physical, their um, their their legal, their whole bit before you even send them down to try to get them ASVAB tested and maps and stuff. So take me through your your steps. What are what are kind of the steps that you end up taking somebody who just walks in the doors that's curious about the program? Um, well, for me in the SF side of the house, um, usually if someone just walks in and asks information about soft in general, um, I kind of like gauge what they're actually interested in. And then uh, I kind of explain to them to the best of my ability of what SF is and what SF does, and then as well as CA, Civil Affairs, and what PSYOPs does as well. Usually we're all in the office together, so if Eric here has uh, if, is available and they seem to be more interested in the Civil Affairs side of the house, I try to guide them to Eric because he's obviously, obviously had the experience in Civil Affairs and uh, can elaborate a, a lot more effectively than I could, uh, as opposed to being SF. So, do you guys really have usually? What would you say on average? They have pretty good idea of what they're walking into. You know, in terms of the, the questions that they ask you guys, or what they perceive to be civil affairs, psyops, SF, or, or are they like somewhat? You know, not real educated here. Uh, in terms of, I'm just talking about in general. Mm-hmm. You know, is, do you find that? People walk in and they think they understand what SF's mission is, but they they, they really don't. I, I or think, civil affairs or psyops, you know what I mean? I think uh, maybe on the special forces side, they understand it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, not perfectly, generally, but yeah, I know uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they get an idea. Yeah. Uh, but I think civil affairs and psychological operations are a little bit more difficult to describe to somebody because they don't they don't see or uh, have the experience or any kind of uh, working knowledge of what it is. So you have to kind of sit them down and, you know, figure out their interests a little bit more, uh, kind of gauge whether they would rather do something analytical or more uh, physical. And then we'll kind of guide them to which job they may work best in. So it is a little bit of a challenge to find out what their actual interests are because they sometimes put one uh you know, image of what they like out when in reality it's something totally different and you kind of have to tease it out. Uh, eventually you, you get 
you know, to the bottom of it and then, you know, guide them towards the correct job. So what is the difference for those who are listening that may not, I, I, I can imagine there's a lot of conventional army people that don't have a clue of what civil affairs and psyops do. So run that, uh, through that and kind of give us a background as to what are those differences? What are the MOSs that we're talking about, you know, in a general sense of those two, uh, those two areas? Uh, so as far as what civil affairs is, there, there's three general things that you have to, to uh, understand in order to do it. So there's uh, civil reconnaissance, civil engagements, and then human network analysis. So those, those three topics kind of cover the, the gist of what the job is and then conveying those three topics to, you know, a, a different person and trying to uh, explain what they actually are is, is what civil affairs is. But the, I guess the job is all within like the human domain, working with people. So you, you're going to work a lot face to face. You're going to work all aspects of, uh, I guess, whatever society you're working in, whether it be uh, in an embassy setting or all the way down to a, like a tactical level. Um, you're going to be dealing face to face a lot of time with uh, host nation people. So that I guess the, the biggest takeaway would be that you're working uh, absolutely within the human domain and you have to work face to face with with your counterpart. So CAs are typically attached to in these types of tactical environments specifically, you know, are they typically assigned or attached in some specific way or are they they go in as a unit themselves and and perform a role that complements other soft or you know, help us help me out there. Uh, so, in the uh, in tactical setting, I guess the the most common way they're employed would be as a four man civil affairs team, working along with like a SF ODA or some kind of task force uh, in that setting. And then, if you're looking uh, or viewing it from a, uh, I guess, an embassy standpoint, it would be still a four-man civil affairs team uh, generally doesn't have to be attached to anything else. Uh, you, you'll work with, you know, PSYOP uh, often, uh, SF often, and then any other uh, conventional or, or soft organization that is in the area as well. And State Department, uh, a lot of agencies and, and other uh, organizations. So you have a, a very wide range of people you work with, but the general deployed team is only four people attached to whoever so to go civil affairs typically um first you you know either meet yourself or you go down to a guidance counselor to meps or something to go that path so civil affairs in the active duty uh, army is not available uh straight from the street so you have to join as uh whatever mos you choose and then find a uh, special operations recruiting office, and then go through all of the, the packet process to attend uh, selection and then the rest of the Q course. Partly because you guys want a more seasoned individual than it is somebody technically that comes off the streets. Because, I mean, back in the day, it was the same thing for 18 series. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you had to have at least two years on active duty and be an E4 uh, before you could do that route. So now that's changed and become 18 X-ray civil affairs not looking at going down that same kind of path or um so currently it's not available then it, it may be in yeah. the future i'm not really sure what the plans are as far as opening up a you know a, an option like that mm-hmm. um 
just currently is unavailable other than on the reserve side they have their own their entirely different uh pipeline interesting uh, so active duty currently is strictly a packet uh, packet process through assessment and selection and then the q course i'm not not sure about any other plans of yeah of, uh, airborne you got to go through airborne school right right yeah so how long would uh, your typical pipeline last you know a year Two years, you know, with somebody getting into civil affairs, MOS. So it, it would be just under a year from the beginning of the qualification course to the end, uh, excluding selection, which is, you know, 10 days uh, plus some travel time uh, prior to the qualification course. So you do the selection, uh, choose your time to go to the qualification course, and from the start date of that until you're completely finished is just under one year okay how many like active duty typically are there of civil affairs i mean you're in four-man team so i wouldn't think there's a large number right so there's only one brigade it's a 95th civil affairs brigade uh, located in fort bragg north carolina that consists of five battalions and they're they each have six companies in them uh so much narrows it down right there yeah if you're going to go civil affairs you're going to bragg yeah, gonna, exactly. Like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so it's a very small unit. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's helpful for, you know, people who are listening, they're curious about that and stuff. You know exactly where you're going to be uh, homesteading at for sure. So the PSYOPs route. Uh, explain a little bit about the PSYOPs and how that might be a little bit different. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll try my best. Um, so PSYOPs, I guess, is sort of similar in some ways to civil affairs as the, uh, the packer process you would end up, you know, come to a special operations recruiting uh, office just the same as you would for civil affairs or SF. They have the the same length selection and very similar uh, selection as civil affairs. And then the pipeline is uh, aligned pretty, pretty close to the same as well, obviously with the MOS portion uh, teaching you a different job. Uh, other than that, it's the language portion is the same. The... Uh, Airborne part's the same. The selection part's the same. Just the job would be a much different part. So which, tell me, what is that job? What is a PSYOPs person, either of you? So that's, that's pretty much the hardest part. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, like, <laughs> that's why they're psychological yeah. operations. Yeah. Right? That's why they have a big personnel problem right now, I believe, um, because a lot of people can't explain what they do. Um, but I think the best way I could describe it is um, they... They try to influence a target area or target population to um, garner support for U.S. interests. So for Afghanistan example, um, like pushing out like news or um, leaflets, uh, you know, yeah, anything. Leaflets, yeah. anything that could help target the local population to support the local Afghan government and U.S. interests as opposed to them supporting the Taliban or ISIS. Yeah. So, unfortunately, a lot of their methods and means are classified. So, yeah. a lot of times people can't even go into like what they do. So it's kind of hard for them as an entity itself to like sell their mission set when a lot of times they can't even talk about what they do. Yeah. Well, is, I mean, that, you know, when you think about special operations, a lot of it is around the secret squirrel stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so you're only going to be able to talk so much to it to describe to a person who's interested what it is that they're getting into 
but a lot of it they may not fully understand and grasp until they're actually walking the walk. Yeah. And they're actually within it. Definitely. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, we've had a lot of questions from individuals, too, that are even looking at the 18 series. And they're saying, you know, how much should I physically get ready? You know, should I start working on, you know, push-ups, set-ups? How far should I start running? Should I do any water work? Should I... And, you know, a lot of guys don't understand it's just as much mental as it is the physical side of it. You know, yeah. there's a lot of mental aspects to this. And I would think that's the same. When you start talking about selection, you start talking about Q, there's a reason why you have that, right? Because you guys are starting to narrow it down to the best candidates and best individuals that's going to fit these teams yep. exactly. um, and work to, together as a unit in the right way of what they're looking for for CAs, for PSYOPs, uh, for 18, you know, for Green Berets. That helps a little bit. You know, in terms of people that are asking some of the questions, in, in you guys' case, were you always at? I guess you were always at Fort Bragg until you you came here on the recruiting side of it. Then, yeah, I spent my entire career outside of training yeah. at Fort Bragg. Uh, one being in the 82nd is where I started uh, my my first duty station or assignment, and then I I went directly from that through the uh, civil affairs pipeline, which kept me at Fort Bragg for. Uh, until telecruiting started, so yeah, I had a good 15 years, actually, well, 14 years uh, straight at Fort Bragg. So, how hard was the language course? Uh, I mean, it depends on your language. Like when I went through the language training, I had Urdu, and before that, I never knew Urdu was a thing. I never, never heard, heard of that, Matt. To yeah. be honest with you, so what is Urdu? Help. <laughs> so help it's me. the Pakistani national language. Oh. So it's spoken pretty much the same as Hindi, but written in Arabic alphabet. This isn't what you had done, is it? What? No, so I did, mine was Dari. At one time they did the Pashto, Dari, and the Urdu, but then they narrowed it down to said, hey, we're just going to focus on Dari. Okay. Because I mean, even back in the day, wasn't Persian, Persian Farsi, the, or was that something totally different? I'm, I'm not really sure. Okay. Because I, I they, they have speakers. Farsi is uh, more oriented towards Iran. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, I was just curious because, uh, no, I had never even heard of that language. So that's very interesting. Yeah. So seventh group, though, I mean, you would have thought that it had been more panic or something of that nature, you know? Yeah. So I think they, they do group assignments, like, towards the end of the SFQ course. So um, I think in my case specifically... They had a lot of Urdu and Pashtu speakers in the Q course, but at that time, uh, seventh group was the last group to stand up their fourth battalion. So be, they needed bodies, so pretty sure what happened is they pushed a lot of the Urdu and Pashtu speakers to fill up that fourth battalion um, for an Afghan deployment. And then after that Afghan deployment was done, they kind of restructured all the fourth battalions in every group uh, to go to that um, kind of human tradecraft type stuff so um, after that I went to a normal SF battalion uh, back to a normal SF team so gotcha so what is the way in which I, I'm walked in the door I've now understood about the three MOS's that we're talking about here specifically 18 series CA and PSYOPs I discover that I want to go one path or the other um, what do you guys do in terms of trying to help these active duty guys? You, you, know, you mentioned you put their packet in. 
Um, is it just a matter of, um, hey, I've got a good outstanding military career. You know, I, I'm, I've done fairly well on my PT test, you know, maybe scoring 270, 280, whatever. W- what is it that you guys are honing in on and specifically looking for to identify whether that packet's going to be successful going forward? So for the SF side of the house, um, basically the requirement, everything else is waiverable except for a GT of 105 or a combat score of 105 on the ASVAB. So um, they just brought it down from 107 to now it's 105 for, I believe, a one or two year um, grace period, basically. Um, it's kind of like an experiment they're doing. Um, besides that, um, we just make sure that they're getting their uh, bodies physically prepared. So pretty much selection is all rucking and running past the PT test. So um, we try to prepare guys for that. Um, my my magic numbers that I like to tell people is uh, 277. That's the average score on the PT test that successful candidates are getting. But I like to tell them, 80 plus push-ups, 80 plus sit-ups, um, like a 14, 15 or faster on the run. And obviously you want to be as fast as possible for the run. Um, and then 12 pull-ups. That's usually the uh, PT test range for successful guys. And then of course, um, like the ranger standard of five mile run under 40 minutes, um, then 12 mile ruck. Uh, under three hours, so walking. With how much weight? Uh, 45 dry. Okay. So, and they do weigh it. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely at selection, you don't want to be playing the uh, coming in light game. Yeah. Because pretty much I think that's a yeah. uh, disqualifier on the spot. So. Yeah. And, and so I think part of the challenge, though, is that individuals who are not used to rucking for long distances like that, um, it's, uh, it's really about understanding your feet and conditioning, you know, in the whole bit, because I mean, in the boots, you, you know, I mean, there's guys, there's pictures all over the place where these guys have lost the, their heels. Um, there's uh, it doesn't look pretty. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's all about toughening up your feet and like toughening up your body, basically. And you're going to do pretty much from the start of selection to the end of it. You're besides the runs that you're doing, which is only like three, I believe you're going to have that ruck on your back, like the rest of the time. So that's what I try to stress to guys going to selection the most is hey, get that ruck on your back, get used to the weight, carry around pretty much all day, every day, and getting your feet used to that, uh, getting beat up and rubbing in your boots and everything because you want to toughen up your feet because I've seen the most in-shape guys like looking like G.I. Joe, just ripped and fast as hell, but their feet get tore up, like that's your vehicle of getting places, and if like you have a flat tire, your feet are jacked up, then you can't go anywhere. Yeah. So I want to, I want to, I mean, nobody can see you sitting here, Matt. So typically, you know, I mean, people always look at, um, people within the soft community, you too, Eric, and, and they're looking and they're thinking, okay, these guys are, you know, they're probably six foot one, two thirty, you know, just solid, the whole thing. What, how, what's your height and weight? So I am five ten and one seventy seven right now. All right. Eric, when I came in, okay. I was 150. 150? Yeah. Okay. So, Starting off selection and everything, you yep. started at 150? Wow. Okay. Yeah, I went to selection when I was 20 years old as well, so yeah, pretty young. Yeah. Eric? I generally sit at about uh, 185 and stand six foot tall. Okay. So 
So more of your average kind of people, people out there are are thinking that you've got to be this huge physically fit specimen before even entering and um, that's not necessarily true. It's just more about getting your mind, your body right in a specific way of knowing what you're going to get, what you're facing, you know, what's yeah. coming at you and everything. And if you can do that um, and you can carry yourself well, then you should be pretty successful through the course, uh, through yeah. the selection. Um, I'm a big believer in uh, stress inoculation. So, like, the best, the best thing to do for train for selection is, like, preparing your body because you putting in the time to like prepare for those rucks and everything and just getting used to that weight like they'll do something to you subconsciously even that like hey like i've been putting in this much time with all the weight on my back so like it'll it also strengthens your mind at the same time gets you used to that weight and things like that so yeah so tell take us through after sfas but special forces assessment and selection, what is it that kind of, you know, people talk about the queue, but you don't ever hear about it that often. I mean, they, they hit on a few things, you know, Robin Sage, language, whatever, but kind of take us through a little bit of what that queue consists of in, in typical timelines. Yeah, so they just changed it recently. So it's pretty much cut and dry a year with the exception of the 18 Delta MOS, which is the medics. Mm -hmm. So they're their job training for 18 Delta is like basically a year in itself. So theirs is more so on the two-year mark, but for everyone else, it's basically a year. So it starts off uh, once you PCS the brag, after you pass selection, um, you'll start the orientation phase. I believe that's one week now. Um, and then after the orientation phase, you go into MOS. So... At selection, the successful candidates, they basically get assigned from what they ask for, what job they want to do. And it could range from 18 Bravo, the weapons sergeant, 18 Charlie, the engineer, uh, 18 Delta, the medic, or 18 Echo, the communication sergeant. So all entry, all guys that pass selection, with the exception of officers, get 18 Alpha, of course. Um, they get one of those four MOSs. So uh, whichever MOS you... Uh, put on the wish list as you want most of the time you get it so um after that first orientation phase you go into your on your actual job training your mos training and then from there it goes into seer or the mos training is 10 weeks now with the exception of 18 delta like i said and then it moves straight into seer which is three weeks after that after seer they start the uh, tactical skills training which used to be the old small unit tactics or SUT training. Uh, it's a little bit different now. It's more uh, team training concept oriented. So uh, in the tactical, skill, tactical skills training, they do MOS cross training, um, a lot of patrols, things like that, same things as SUT. But it also goes into um, intro to foreign internal defense and intro to unconventional warfare, which is two of the five... Uh, primary mission sets for special forces before you go further i want to ask you though back in the day you, you might make it through selection but then there was another washout rate in sut is it still the same way um i think it's a little lower now um i think they're more so using selection as the gatekeeper as opposed to having 
every phase in the key course as another gatekeeper best way i could describe it yeah what what changed that i wonder i mean you hear all the time about how the standards are changing you know but the standards have been changing since the beginning of special forces i mean there was a a mission set a need um a pipeline of training and stuff that was originally started Mm -hmm. and then since then it's always evolved and obviously when there's a need and a greater demand for forces is also going to drive the behavior and how the training gets modified as well yeah so the way it's been described is selection has been like heavy-handed so they view selection as um basically the determining factor is it if this guy can go to the training or not um i guess what they found was like in the q course they're washing um, a lot of guys were like failing out and things like that that were qualified but for whatever reason like didn't make it things like that so they're trying to uh, put more emphasis on selection uh, being the screening process and then the key course as the instructional process so Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense and i think within a lot of military that's kind of the case i mean you if you can pass selection selection is to determine whether or not your body mind and everything is going to be right to work with Mm -hmm. the special operations community whereas the other part of it is something i can teach you how to be a radio operator i can teach you how to do you know demolitions or something of that nature but if you can't handle the most stressful situations that physically and mentally take a toll on you then you're automatically not going to be eligible in the community yeah and that's kind of what special forces selection and Q now have, have gone to is what I'm hearing. Yeah. So after, um, I didn't, didn't mean it totally interrupt you and take you off course here. So after uh, TST or what used to be SUT, what happens then? So they finish the tactical skills training. Um, like I said, it goes into entry to foreign internal defense or FID and then entry into UW or unconventional warfare. And I believe it's, semi-scenario driven where you do those two things and it kind of more rolls into robin sage now so scenario where something happens in country x um you need to prepare for it and then a threshold is broken uh country x um goes into like uh serious turmoil and then in the robin sage exercise that's when your team is supposed to infill country x and then conduct un- unconventional warfare with that country's uh, partner nation forces and so everybody who's gone down this path always talks about you know robin sage and everything um it's really where you're 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 kind of getting over that last hump if you can make it through robin sage you do everything right and there's a whole community around there that gets uh, involved in this because yeah. they really enjoy this. They're, so Robin Sage, this country where you're at, they have their own currency. They have their own bank. I mean, it's a full-on. They try They try to put you in a situation um, where you're really going to have to, uh, to act as if it's the real deal. It's not like this is just training. This is seeing whether you can handle the stress and the things that are going on around you that are going to be very typical of what you're going to find once you get to a unit. Yeah. So that's the... Uh that's where the big thing about having the right person comes in fact um comes into uh, play as well because you want someone that's mature enough to handle like very very awkward important like big deal situations you know um yeah robin sage definitely tests tests you in a lot of those areas so 
like it's pretty much all over North Carolina. Um, the they do get into the role play very, very deep, um, and it definitely tests you. That's for sure. I want to ask you, Don. You know, I mean, Don was an RI um, out here at Fourth RTB, and so I'm curious. Like, you know, in in your case, you had a lot of peer review and a lot of you know, reviewing the individuals and in the, the type of situation where you put them in the tactical and you're trying to see if they can actually be a leader and step forward and those types of things. You know, was it a, a situation that's different than what he's kind of describing? Because I would see it as there's still a teamwork that's going on there, but you're also measuring more of the team and the individual um, within the Ranger School. I'm just trying to, for those that are trying to listen and understand the difference between what we just said. From an RI perspective, I think from the RI perspective, it's it's there more. It's really, uh, it's an individual check, a gut check on that. Yeah, you get peered and you and you have to work as a team, but you're really evaluating the individual. And I and and I have not gone there, but I think there, you're looking at how does a guy work with a team and what what he brings, what they bring to that. And I think the there is a difference to. Yeah, you know, you're doing ambushes, recons, and raids, and that kind of stuff at the schoolhouse. But you're really looking at: does the individual have? Does he show leadership ability to do it? It's a leadership yeah. goal. What I think is that in that case, I mean, it might not be totally leadership driven as far as the individual itself. Yeah. So Robin <clears throat> Sage, it evaluates you on all the training you received so far in the um, Q course in entirety. So. They'll, they'll grade you on your MOS proficiency and whatever MOS you're assigned, um, your patrols. So you got to lead uh, partner nation forces on patrols too. Um, all the other things that they teach in the Q course, airdrops, things like that. Um, and they just want to see how you react in like real world uh, scenarios that they put you in because a lot of the scenarios they put you in out there are based off what has actually happened in the past in Afghanistan, for example. And they want to see you make the right decision in certain situations where you probably won't have oversight and you're not going to have time, uh, the time available or the resources available to either ask permission or get guidance on what to do. So, uh, they want you to be autonomous and be able to make the mature right decision in whatever situation you're in. So they're rotating each of you through into a role so they can see how you how you do that in that type of leadership state yeah. where you're making those? Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. So it's not just that you can go and be one of the guys in the background and slide on through. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's good. Right. And I think in ours, we're, in, as an RI, you're not evaluating them on their MOS background. You're looking mm-hmm. at the an individual on that. It might weigh into if they're a board, i.e. they got recycled and they go before the board, they might look at the fo- the packet of that guy and say, yeah, he needs to stay here and he's almost got it. Or, yeah, he's not even, let's send it back to his unit, let him get some more training and try it again. Yeah. So we don't... Tr- you know by their performance you have an idea who of who they are but as far as the instructor i mean you don't mess around with what rank if it's a lieutenant or if it's a specialist or pfc from regiment you're not you don't really care yeah you're not you're not into that after robin sage what so after you finish robin sage um um they graduate so they get their special forces tab and green berets and then they start the language portion of the Q course. Um, 
Which it used to be the language was part of yeah. it. Yeah. When I went through in 2010 uh, or 2011, language was the first thing you did. Yeah. So they had um, a big dropout rate is part of the reason why, right? Because I yeah. mean, a lot of guys just could not learn a language. Yeah. I know? mean, some of those languages like Chinese, Arabic, I mean, cat four languages. I mean, it is what it is. Like, it's pretty, pretty tough stuff to learn. And then guys that get Spanish or native speakers in certain languages, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. Kind of SOL on there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that, that helps a lot because I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have been hearing differences about the training in the pipeline. And I think what, what you described is quite well. I mean, they, they go through the selection. Then we're trying to then teach them to be uh, a special forces soldier. And then once they do that, then we're going to teach them a language. It's a, it's a much different path. It's not like anything's different. You're still going through all of the same things that you had before. It's just how you jumbled it up, how it might be. So let me throw a little curveball at you. Um, a female is interested in going through the same pipeline, and now that the MOS has been open to uh, to females, are they now taking a different physical training pipe uh, or path and stuff through this training, or are they actually going through the same male physical requirements? So I think we've had two women that have been successful in SFS um, past year and a half, I believe. One so, recently. Yeah. I um, forgot what, which class it was, but... Yeah, they they do all the same stuff uh, from what I understand. So it's all the same all the same events during gate week. Same physical standards in. Yep. Same physical standards as the males. Yep. I just you know I can't state that enough because I think there's a lot of guys out there who are listening to this show um, who've heard rumors about hey females are going through, but they're they're not holding them to the same standards. And there's cadre that are out there that are stating I think some of the same things. It's been you know, put out there into space. Now, we don't know whether these are real cadre or not because they're always second in my cousin's brother's uncle um, yeah. is a cadre member and said. But I, I think we have to break some of these stigmas that we put into place about what we believe a special operator should look like. And it's the reason why I went in down the path. I mean, you look at some of the guys in fifth group in Vietnam that were, you know, um, SOG guys and everything. I mean, these guys... They didn't always fit the the mold of what you thought was a, an SF guy, you know, yeah. uh, a Green Beret. And so you got to break down some of those barriers and walls. And when you get to serve and brag and you see them walking around all the time, specifically, you know, in that area, you begin to see that they're of all shapes, colors, sizes, the whole bit. I think we need to do the same thing when it comes to the females. Let's get the right message out there. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's very helpful that you stated that. So. At this stage here, we can pretty much assume if two females have gone through selection, more than likely they're going to earn the long tap. Yeah, um, they still have to go through all the other events in the Q course. So that's also, I mean, you have to be proficient in your MOS and pass the tactical skills training and Robin Sage and everything like that. So um, still evaluations processes, of course, to go through. Sure. But, but you've passed the most difficult aspect of it at least from a physical mental standpoint and now it's on your own merit i would think at this point yep. so they basically screen you that you're yeah you're the individual that they're looking for in selection and then uh from there i mean it's aptitude if you can learn your mos and be proficient in it if you're good at patrols things like that you're competent on the tactical side uh, you're able to be proficient 
in employing unconventional warfare or in a foreign internal defense atmosphere, be able to train your partner nation forces effectively and be competent in that, then, yeah, that's the person that they're looking for. So is there anything at the end where they sit you down and you're sitting a bunch of uh, senior NCOs and officers and, and they ask you a bunch of questions and they could very well take away your your tab right then or your opportunity? I mean, that last step? Uh, I mean, it's possible, yeah, but I think it's pretty much phased out. So, like, you have to pass each subsequent phase to advance in the next one. Uh, from what I understand. Yeah. yeah. So, like, if you don't pass your MOS portion, then you're not going to move on to the tactical skills portion. Right. And if you don't tas- pass the tactical skills portion, you're not going to go to Robin Sage. Okay. So right. it is uh, it is compounded in that way that you have to um, be pro- uh, display that you're proficient in each subsequent phase before you could move on to the next phase. Yeah. You know, we have a we have a cadre member who was um, Navy SEAL, then went 160th, and um, he's mentioned on one of our previous episodes that there was a first female pilot that came to the 160th and how outraged a lot of the males were, and uh, their concern about she's not going to be able to carry them out of the battlefield. So when that was topic was actually raised in a formation to the commander, the commander says, okay, I think I guess what you're saying is that we need to start doing battle drills in which each one of you are going to be graded as to whether or not you can carry, you know, somebody that's of a specific weight. Well, guess what, guys? If you don't do it, you're out of the 160th. Yeah. Well, then everybody decided, whoa, 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 maybe, maybe that's, you know, because the truth is not all of us are going to be capable of carrying the guy next to us out of a battlefield. We're going to figure out a way to get him out of there, but it's not like throw it over your back type of thing, you know? Yeah. So... I think people have put a lot of um, emphasis within the physical side of it, um, and, and not that that's not part of the requirements and stuff, but I think they're gauging things perhaps on the wrong thing. If we gauged every uh, person in every job and every MOS in the same way, I think we'd find that not everybody's up to the standards. And there are a lot of people who went through SFAS and Q that were probably alongside, and I won't put you on the spot, but you'd probably think, well, that guy probably shouldn't have earned that. You know, or I, I don't felt, feel like he carried his weight. Because I hear the same thing through ranger school. You know, we had the same thing with the females that went through there, but specifically even the males. Um, when it came your time, Don, I mean, you were talking about how a lot of the males, not all of them stacked up, but they're graded individually. When you became a, a ranger instructor, it was much different. Well, absolutely. I mean, like I said, we, and we've talked about it previously, but in the schoolhouse, regardless there was always a day that maybe, you know what, man, my knee is really hurting me. Or, hey, I twisted my ankle last night. And that group is going to put together, and they're going to carry the so-called weight till you get there. Because there's going to be another day somewhere along the line you're going to help them out. Like, you know, I use the thing. We had a guy that was just – he was just strong. And he feared losing weight all the time and always wanted to be built. So, hey, you know what, Killer? You can carry the machine gun and you can carry the AG gear and move yeah. along. He carried it, and when we stopped, hey, we were in a three-man team. He got to nap a little bit while, while we pulled the security, and it worked out. So it's not that you're not carrying your weight. It's just there are days out there that you're not as strong as you are the next day or the previous day. And, it, you know, it's, that's part of working as a team. Working as, yeah. I, I couldn't say any better, especially working as a team. Eric, I'm going to switch gears now, and I want to talk about the same thing as it relates to the civil affairs. You know, you talked a little bit about the selection, and you talked about as well as the, the qualification course of this. But 
what is kind of those steps that you go through? And, and when you say selection, are we talking about the same thing that these guys are going through in the 18 series in SWIC, or is it uh, in, in a totally different defined type of way? Help us out there. Uh, I guess if you start from the very beginning, from where we spoke about the packets mm-hmm. and what what's requirements are, uh, it starts there with a slight change of the uh, GT is a 107 for the minimum. And other than that, the rest of the packet's generally the same as far as administrative documents and the physical portion. Um, once you get that put together and you end up going to the civil affairs assessment selection or CAS, you'll uh, see another change in uh, length of time uh, as SFAS is uh, 21 days Mm -hmm. and then uh, CAS is 11 days start to finish. Um, So there there are differences within it, obviously, from the length of time. And then uh, several things are uh, removed. So there is no... um, like star course for net, uh, land navigation that isn't in the civil affairs assessment and selection. Um, and then there isn't like the whole team week concept. There's aspects of all of it, uh, that are very similar as far as, you know, make sure you can run, make sure you can rock, uh, being physically fit is definitely, uh, a must for any of the three selections. Um, Similar type of things, though, you know, in terms of getting prepared. It's good to have, like, a 277, 280, get prepared to do a five-mile run, 40 minutes, run yeah. 12 miles. I would say all, all of that stuff is very important yeah. for, for any of them because you're, you're going to be tested, your feet are going to be tested, you're going to have to carry your rock. Um, very similar things, just the duration of time is, you know, half as long, so that's uh, kind of a break, I guess, if you if you want to call it that. Um but the rest of selection is similar. Uh, when you talk about the the rest of the testing, you're going to have uh, much scenario-based, uh, team-based, um, some kind of yeah testing as far as um, like IQ tests and whatnot. They're they're all the same. Um, the scenarios will be slightly different because you're looking for a different type of person or a different type of job. So. They each have scenarios. They're just going to be set up. That the content will be different. I guess would be a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess once you finish with that, if you have, unless you have more questions about no, the selection, no. Um, it, it, the duration you said is how long though? It's ten days plus some travel time, so okay. eleven day total. All right. And then you move on from there to the civil affairs qualification course, which mirrors. Uh, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll say all three of them together kind of mirror each other as far as the uh, MOS portion being first, uh, followed by a tactical skills portion, and then uh, regional studies is in there as well, and then the language portion uh, portion being last. So starting out with the MOS portion, it's like, I think, 11 weeks long. Um, that's where you'll learn all the civil reconnaissance, civil engagements, and uh, uh, human network analysis, and how to employ that within whatever target population you go work in. Uh, then you'll be tested. Uh, the next phase, I guess, would be the tactical skills portion, uh, mirroring SF's um, Robin Sage 
or not Robin Sage, but uh, SUT. Mm-hmm. And then, so there'd be similar things. I think there's maybe not touch points yet, but I know the pipelines are, are geared now towards uh, having some touch points along the way so they understand each other's jobs a little bit uh, work together from the beginning instead of learning each other's job uh, in some other country down the road. Um, then once you, in civil affairs, you complete your tactical skills portion, you'll move into uh, the language portion, which is the six-month time frame, uh, just like every other uh, SF, CA, and PSYOP all have the same same time frame. Uh, the difference is being for civil affairs, you get your MOS granted once that entire pipeline is complete. Oh, so yeah. not not after the MOS portion then? Nope. So it's uh, that's a, a little bit different than the uh, SFAS or SF portion, um, being that you just are granted the MOS once you complete language school, um, and then you move to the 95th, would be the first uh, unit you'd go to. Uh, stay there until your probably your team time is up, and then there is a small unit that you may uh, transfer to, which is the 83rd, uh, also active duty civil affairs, uh, just a very small unit. It's only one battalion that uh, supports conventional forces. So there's there's two options. Uh, the 95th being the first option you'd go to immediately after the qualification course is complete. Other than that, slight differences between SF and civil affairs would be that you would complete SEER school in your unit instead of within the qualification course. Okay. Right. I was going to ask that question because we've talked about all the the gates to get there, but what about the professional development courses along the way as far as like the NCOES? Is there, if it's 18 X-ray, I mean, I believe they have, you guys have their own uh, professional development courses, i.e. the Warrior Leader course, the Advanced Leader course. Is there... Uh, a particular gate, or do you have to say a guy comes in? He's a he's a sergeant or a young E four mm-hmm. that wants to put in an SF packet. He goes to get for the selection. He gets accepted. Does he need to have like the World Leader course prior to attending, or is that something he'll get after that year of training that he's going to do? Yeah. So for the SF side of the house, no. So the Q course in itself acts as a uh, BLC and an ALC. Okay. So um, they go over it in the orientation phase, I believe. Um, but the first NCOES line that 18 series guys go through, if they haven't been to one before, would be SLC for okay. E7, basically, okay. or starting first class. And I, and I just ask that because I know in the past, the previous, not to give the age away, but we had soldiers in the unit that had submitted packets mm-hmm. and um, gone to selection, got accepted, but then part of their wait for their the Q the qualification course, they had to attend the PODC, and the same with on the officer side, they usually have to do a maneuver uh, captain's career course prior to beginning their training. Yeah. So for the Q course, it's all encompassing okay. that um, it acts as a BLC and ALC. That's market. And, and rightfully so. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah you're not going to learn any, probably anything more. Yeah. <laughs> Is it the same for CA? I mean, PSYOPs, uh, individual doesn't already have, you know, the, the basic leadership courses, or is there a requirement that they have to have that as a hurdle, or, you know? 
so the requirement was removed. So now uh, it's all incorporated, just like special forces. So it, uh, the Q course would you would have like a small course right before the rest of the course that would uh, allow anybody that did not have the basic leaders course to attend and get that out of the way before they begin the course. Then they would move on, um, do just like I had spoken about earlier. Um, you would do your MOS portion, your tactical skills portion, and then you would do Celeste Tiller, which is uh, basically the counterpart for Robin Sage. And then go on to language school and that in in that course would grant you basically your advanced leader course. And then once you're complete with that, you would have um, the next leadership course would be senior leader course. Okay. So it's it's incorporated oh. throughout the throughout the pipeline. Unlike special forces, civil affairs and psyops has been fully integrated with females for a long period of time. Right. Yep. Um, I guess kind of what you were speaking about earlier when you said uh, special operations soldiers, you know, don't necessarily look uh, like you would expect. Um, I guess there's probably a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, they operate in many countries all over the world, all of the time. So you kind of have to fit in mm -hmm. and having one specific look doesn't allow you to fit in very well. So having different backgrounds, different ethnicities, uh, different sizes and shapes, men, uh, men and women, uh, allows you to operate just uh, better, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you have more uh, diverse uh, formations for you to uh, employ around the world. Well, I mean, I think it, that's a great point because part of you guys' role, and I would say in both capacities, uh, whether it's 18 or whether, you know, special forces or um, it's in civil affairs or psyops, is that you're trying to assimilate. That's the reason why you go through the, uh, the, the language training. That's the reason why you're assigned to specific units for specific regions. There's a lot of that that goes into um, them trying to do that assessment, where you belong, where is it that you're going to most likely fit that uh, area, region of the, the world or whatever, and be able to easily assimilate uh, once you're, you're planted in there uh, yep. with the local people. You know, so I, I think that's a that's a great takeaway. I have a couple questions that actually came up from some of the people who follow us uh, within social media and primarily within Instagram that I want to ask you guys. And either one of you guys can uh, answer the questions. They're going to be a little bit all over the place. Like Jake Morris asked a question about, is there any personal experience or information on going to the 75th Ranger Regiment and then to CAG? I don't know if you guys can answer that question specifically within Special Forces in Delta. So um, going to them specifically, I mean, obviously you get the Option 40 contract off the street, like being a civilian, and then go directly into the Ranger Regiment. And then from there, if you choose to go to that unit, um, my best advice is just like be a mature individual, um, obviously be as in shape and possible or be as in shape as possible. Totally different pipeline as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, my understanding is like they, that unit likes endurance athletes. So like not so much, um, like you, you don't need to be like an NFL player. You need to more be a ultra runner basically. Cause their, I know their selection is a lot of, a lot of long rucks so um 
I think the best. I think their their target PT scores is like a twelve thirty run, and then a three hour thirty minute eighteen miler. From wow. what I understand, so that's moving on both those ends. So yeah, most definitely. <laughs> Great, great answer. So uh, Jeffrey asked a question about how do you become a dog handler and be a team member of SF? So a dog handler is a, it's kind of like a group internal thing for an 18 series guy. So um, I believe each group has its own uh, group internal dog handling entity, basically. So um, most of the time, most individuals that follow that route um, – they do their three years uh, normal team time as whatever MOS they got assigned once they got to a group. And then if they wanted to do so, uh, they could reach out to the dog handler unit in each respective group and then be, basically be assigned there as a special forces dog handler. So okay. it's like an additional duty, basically. Yeah. Once you fulfill your... Um, baseline three-year obligation and, and training on to be a, a dog handler and stuff too you've got to go yeah. through the training so it's not yeah. just hey yeah you can be a dog handler here yeah so know. basically they go to their little dog handler training um each group runs and then uh if you successfully pass that train then you'll be assigned with a dog and then uh basically be attached to other sf teams in your same group or um whatever group you assign to and then basically you're a special forces dog handler that is supporting another special forces team. Okay, this is for um, both of you guys because I'm curious to know, maybe you guys share different answers. But from a military comrade asked a question, what are the most common misconceptions about the U.S. Army Special Operations Forces? Uh, well, kind of goes back to the original question I asked, yeah. too, you know, because I think it's just common. A lot of people may have a lot of misconceptions, so... Yeah, I think they generally misunderstand the jobs in general. Like they, they see a lot of action movies, and they they assume that every job within special operations is it's that action same. figure. Yeah. yeah, knuckle dragging, door kicking, pipe hitting. Exactly. So I think yeah. they they don't understand that there are multiple jobs within special operations, and they mm-hmm. all uh, have a, a specific set of skills that are useful. You know, force off in general. So I think breaking that down and allowing them to educate themselves on what specifics are within each job uh they would they would uh <laughs> they'd be able to select what they want more instead of just being straight to uh special forces or to a, a ranger regiment and you know being a, a pipe hitter like you said so there there's definitely more options than they they know about yeah so Educate Google, make Google your friend. Yeah, I mean, the best way to eliminate those misconceptions is, like, try to find people in those jobs and reach out to them and communicate with them. And then doing your own research on each branch's specific special operation unit that they have and finding out, like, what they actually do and what their mission sets are and what they try to train and focus for. Both of you guys are still in, but this is a question that maybe you guys can talk about in terms of... Just your own experience, people got, uh, you've known and stuff like that who've separated. But it comes from uh, BC Captures who ask, what does the typical route guys take once they leave the service um, from the soft community? I think that could go in a lot of directions. Uh, I know what we all see is a lot of guys go contractor. You yeah. Know, but. yeah. I mean, I don't think there is any typical route yeah. that any 
any group of people yeah um choose like once they leave from the soft community but um just the types of people that we have in our ranks i mean they're usually successful in whatever ventures they choose to do because they are self-starting motivated individuals that like have that no fail mentality Mm -hmm. so and a plan yeah. yeah, I've yep. seen that a lot. Yeah. I, we totally yeah. agree. The, With contingencies. So, yep. Yep. Most of the successful guys I've seen that's made the transition are from the soft community. Uh, I could definitely say that. Uh, they usually have their head on straight. They, you know, uh, in most cases, I wouldn't say it, it's, I wouldn't paint a broad brush, but in most cases, they're a lot more mature. Um, they, they look at the world in a very different way. Um, they understand they have to, like you said, have a very focused and guided um, solution. They have more than one contingency. Yeah. You know, they they don't wait maybe to the last minute to make a decision. Uh, they've thought right. it out carefully. So I think a lot of it stems from their uh, their breadth of knowledge from being operational throughout different parts of the world. Like they have an experience different than you know many conventional people. So they they've seen different things and they've. Uh, been expected to perform at a certain level and that gives them kind of an opportunity to to go in whatever direction they, they feel fit you know mm -hmm. uh, and be successful at it well you think so. about you and your mos well both of you guys because i mean again if you're working in a host nation um you're, you're working with a very different culture you're trying to build um you know find that bridge and fill that gap and stuff and open communication these are great skill sets for anything you do within the private sector yeah. i mean you have to sell yourself as an individual in order to get your foot in the door once mm -hmm. you get the job you certainly want to prove your value to the organization you're constantly looking at where the gaps are within the, the teams and organization that you can fill um, you know, and where you can lend your support as a team member. I mean, these are like skill sets that you guys learn, like you said, from the very beginning. And it transfers very easily then into the private sector. You know, yeah. um, a lot of guys, I think, because they see, again, the action movies, knuckle dragging, door kicking, pipe hitting type of individuals, they think, oh, well, they're going to they're going to struggle when they go to the private sector because they don't have those good skill sets. You have the best soft skills. Uh, some of the best uh, soft skills yeah. available that's out there. Yeah, I feel like uh, soft like soft soldiers in general or individuals in the soft community, like they they are the most uh, qualified individuals because they're the ones that are asked to do the most with the least amount of resources, basically, especially in SF. So yeah. Well, so I have another question from, I'm probably going to mess this up, Gigi Mamo. Do you, uh, do people get cut from selection courses for being too young or immature? Um, for being too immature, yeah, because they will see that most likely at the selection course. But um, for being too young, I mean, probably not because um, they'll screen you, like, paper paperwork-wise before you even go, so... You'll know, like trying to submit a packet, if you're too young or too old to begin with. Um, you guys help start screening that off in the very beginning as well before you even submit the packet. Is that yeah, part of the pre-screening? Yep. Maybe, maybe you because need to, um, at least for SF wise, yeah. I think the youngest you could be is 20, but they do have waivers for that. Like they have waivers for everything, um, and then the oldest, again, waiver, including waivers, is a 36, but. It's waverable. Yeah. Like, like I said, everything's waverable. This is a young for, man's game, though. I, yeah. I, I couldn't do, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the maturity thing is uh, it's a pretty big deal for 
like everyone in the soft community. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Even, I mean, I went through selection when I was 20, but I felt like I was premature and have only got more mature yeah. as time goes on. But they like said, everyone's an individual. If you feel like you're mature enough to handle, handle it, then I'd say go. Yeah. And for the civil affairs portion, I think, uh, as far as age, there isn't there's a strict requirement, so they don't. I wouldn't see that anybody getting cut for any kind of age restriction. Uh, but along the lines of maturity, I think absolutely they they could cut you because um, they don't want to have an, an uh, excuse me an individual pose a risk later down the road that they could have stopped way earlier. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a precaution that they have. Yeah, I mean, you gotta think too, like. Sometimes you, I've been in situations where it was literally me and one other guy being the representatives of the United States Army and the United States government in general in very austere conditions. And they don't want someone that's going to be very immature and can't handle a situation like that. Yeah. Possibly cause like an international incident or something. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So we have another question. What kind of freedom or latitude do you guys have in putting together your loadouts? Uh, Gear-wise? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say you have pretty good freedom. I mean, as far as, like, weapons and stuff, um, I mean, you want it depends on what your mission is in whatever country you are in. So you kind of want to have some common sense and take weapons that are appropriate to accomplish the mission um so if like you're doing like raids and stuff like that i mean i don't think you'd want to take like all mp5s and clearing operations on big valleys you know because appropriate weapon system for the appropriate target right Mm -hmm. um but as long as it makes sense and it's uh has like tactical common sense you got to carry it right yeah I mean, no. whatever I mean, you want to put on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could have a lot of cool stuff on your guns, but that's more weight on your weapons. Yeah. So, uh, in my opinion, I mean, you want to travel fast and light, right? Yeah. But, I mean, you could do whatever, pretty much whatever you want to your your kit, your body armor, um, your weapons. As long as it's available to you, I mean, you could put it on there um, for the CA side of the house. Yeah, I think it's it's very similar as far as you know what you what you want to take with you is kind of up to you. Um, there are you know a, a wide variety of things you're going to be doing within civil affairs. So even if you're going to go on a mission that you're going to be strictly working inside an embassy, you're still going to have the uh, latitude to to pack what you need. So you're going to have an additional box that's all combat gear, uh, your weapon systems, your your body armor and whatnot, which you can pack kind of however you want, but uh, you're probably going to pack both uh, for both missions, regardless of where you go, just because anything can happen at any point. So you're going to have both both systems ready. Yeah. From the tactical side of it, I would imagine that for the CA PSYOPs, I mean, even though you guys are trained to, um, you know, either work with that host nation and communicate and establish good rapport and everything on the CA or in PSYOPs and trying to get the the people uh, to go along with the mission that we're trying to do there. Make no mistake about it, you guys are still soldiers at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's a big misunderstanding, too, for even Deltas and everybody on the team. They always 
think that that might be a medic first. No, it's not a medic first. It's a door kicker, you know, putting lead down range type of guy mm -hmm. first. Secondly, you're a medic. Yep. You know. Yep. Uh, is the same true for the CA psyops because it's not something that's really talked about as much. Yeah, I think you're in a military. I mean, if you're in a military, you're in a military, and that's that's your first and foremost job would be to be a soldier. So yes, you would always have that, and that would be your responsibility. Uh, at all times, but I think in any soft job, you're going to have an additional job. So that being the base job, you would have all the other skills that you're taught that you're going to have to employ all the time. Uh, and that's just kind of a contingency plan. So yeah. that would be your last resort. Why do you guys mm -hmm. think, um, this is just my question, why do you guys think that soft is getting so much highlight now? I mean, you know, it seems like back in the day, there was a more of the quiet professional they didn't talk about things as much. You knew about them a little bit. You know, you'd see a guy maybe, you know, Greenberry, or you watch the movie, or you started seeing the action figures and stuff like that. But why do you think soft is becoming more something bigger that's out there, especially by the younger generation? I think it's, I mean, because we, we need it, you know. Like, I think the soft entities in the in the military, the ones getting the brunt of the work and, taking the brunt of the fight, you know? Yeah. Um, so could be possibly that they're trying to highlight that, that we need highly qualified, good people to fill these roles and trying to put that out there, that these types of roles exist. Um, I think it's a great response. You know, I didn't know if you wanted to piggyback on that, Eric. Uh, I think it's, it's accurate. Um, if you hide the jobs, you're never going to fill them. So right. I think they need to highlight it a little bit and advertise a little bit just to get people excited about it so they'll apply, you know, and then fill the ranks so they can you know, continue to do and have this position. Both great answers. And I think, you know, Matt, you mentioned, you know, the need uh, that's out there and stuff and the high demand and the stress and stuff that's put on you guys. I mean, you guys are doing shorter duration rotations, higher risk, um, more combat uh, during those short durations as opposed to, say, conventional forces that may go for a longer uh, periods of time that may not go outside the wire. Yeah. So as far as the SF side, um, they're doing six-month rotations, and then I think by doctrine it's um, it's a two-to-one ratio. So for every one period of time you're gone, you're going to be back in the rear or back at, like, home station uh, for twice that amount of time, so basically a year. Um I know for like 75th, it's a little different. I think it's four, four months. Um, and then I'm not really sure about the other soft branches for the different branches, but yeah, like you said, it's, um, it's a lot, it's a lot more, um, of a busy schedule while deployed as opposed to conventional side of the house. Uh, it's a lot, the op tempo is a lot higher. You could be going out like a lot more frequently, um, Say, for example, in Afghanistan, you could be going out doing actual combat ops as opposed to just, like, sitting on the airfield doing security. Right. You know, so it's so a lot more work, so. Yeah. Puts a toll on you guys. Yep. <laughs> you know, for sure. Well, I appreciate you both coming on the show and taking your time. I think uh, you guys uh, cover a lot of great topics, and specifically for those guys who happen to be on active duty, who you're looking for. Uh, when I say guys, I'm talking both sides, you know, males, females, you're just looking for the best of the best and individuals who are ready to take on the challenge. 
So, I mean, if there was a, a statement or something that you can put out there, what is it that you could say to them to get them to come in to see you guys who may not understand already what it is that this office does or any office that very much like it? Well, I guess I would say if you never try it, you're never going to know. So anybody out there that's within uh, the Army currently, do you have an opportunity that's knocking at your door and you'll never know if you're good enough for it unless you apply yourself and do it. So everybody should try. Yeah. Um, like, like you said, a lot of people like get that itch to, to go do something like this. Um, I would say if, if you feel like you're in shape and you have the itch, like at least try, like, there's there's no shame in going there and then them telling you no as opposed to like you later on in life like thinking like damn i should have went when i was younger mm-hmm. yeah so um, along those lines i'd say like just take the jump if you're seriously getting that itch to do something different and you're gonna be counted they're gonna invest in you as the individual like light years ahead of what the conventional side of the house would do so um they put in a lot of time and effort as you the individual so you could give back and help make like strategic impact from um across the globe so definitely it's a good feeling knowing that you they invest a lot of that time and effort in you the individual Mm -hmm. and uh, making you marketable basically matt eric once again thank you for coming on the show Look forward to uh, doing this again in the future. Yeah, appreciate it, Rob. Thank you.